Well, I wanted to uh, begin this morning and say that promises are always the prelude to action. That promises are the prelude to action. And it was a warm, uh, sunny afternoon in June of 2010. And Rachel and I were wandering through uh, Powell Gardens, the botanical gardens that are just a little bit east of the city here. And we had spent a good part of the day that afternoon wandering through the gardens. And Powell Gardens was a special place for Rachel and I because months before that, we had gone on one of our very first dates together there. And I actually remember on one of those first dates being at Powell Gardens together and thinking as we were there that this, I think I'm really starting to fall in love with this girl. I think that she could be the one that I marry. And so fast forward again to June of 2010, we were there, and on that afternoon in 2010, um, it would be the place there at Powell Gardens where I asked Rachel to marry me. And we sat on a bench near the lake together, and uh, we talked for a few minutes, and then I, I got a crumpled kind of note card out with my sweaty hands, and I got down on one knee, and I read something that I'd written to her, and I asked her to be my wife, and she said yes. It was the best moment. Um, so thankful that she said yes, and has forever changed my life in a million great ways. And we are so, it was such a great moment. But that very moment, the moment that she said yes, the moment that she made the promise to marry me, a flurry of action began. I mean, first of all, we were both on our phones calling uh, lots of friends and family, sharing the good news. In fact, one of the funniest moments of that day was we were driving back from Powell Gardens and we got into the Grandview Triangle and we were both on our phones and we were both so distracted calling people. We kept missing our exit. And so we probably drove through the Grandview Triangle like three times. We did three different loops because we got on the wrong highway and then we had to go back and but then after that, a few days later, you know, we began to do all kinds of other things. Venues were booked and food was ordered and dresses and textiles were picked out and invitations were designed and then redesigned and then redesigned again and then printed and addressed and mailed. Airline tickets and hotel rooms are reserved. In short, a, a lot of money was spent, <laughs> which is good. It was rightly so. It's a moment to be celebrated. But all of that happened because of a promise, a promise made with one little word, Yes. You see, when we make promises, we enable, we motivate action that would otherwise be unthinkable. You see, we didn't plan a wedding in order to get engaged. We were engaged, therefore we began to plan the wedding. All that work of planning was in response to a promise. The work resulted from a promise. You see, promises enable and motivate actions. And this is true in our relationship with one another, but it's also true in our relationship with God that, that promises motivate and enable our action. And as we look into this passage, Genesis 17 this morning, we're going to see that God's promise is what motivates our obedience, that it's God's promise that motivates our obedience. God's promise allows us to live the life that we long to live. God's promise enables our wholeness, our greatest joy and satisfaction is found in responding with faithful obedience to God's great promises. And so this morning as we look at Genesis 17 together, we're going to see who this God is that promises, what he has promised, and then finally how do God's people respond to his promise. So who is this God who promises? What is it that he promises? And then how do God's people respond to the promises that he's made? 
So first, who is this God who promises? Well, first, he's the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth, who we met last week in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And last week, as we ended the message, we left Adam and Eve just east of Eden, outside of the garden. They found themselves hiding from God rather than seeking him. And yet God had not abandoned them. Rather, he sets into motion a plan to rescue his people. You see, even in the midst of sending a flood of judgment on the whole earth, he preserves a faithful man and his family, Noah. And as God continues to work out his rescue plan, he begins making promises. The the language that the Bible uses of covenant, he begins covenanting with his people. And Moses is there, or rather Noah is the first one who he makes the covenant with. He makes a covenant to never again judge the world with a flood, worldwide flood again. And the, and the sign of this promise, the sign of this covenant, is a rainbow in the sky. And the next person that God makes a promise to, that he makes a covenant with, is a man named Abram. And it's Abram's story that we are looking at this morning. Now, we are picking up Abram's story in the middle here in Genesis 17, what was read for us. But his story really begins back in Genesis chapter 12. And if you've been following along with Open Here this week, you've been reading a little bit of Abram's story. Um, And we know from archaeological evidence, and I actually have a a photo here, um, we know from archaeological evidence that that Abram and and Sarai, his wife, they were pagans, they lived in Mesopotamia, they were from the land of Ur, and then they moved to Haran. And I think we have a a slide uh, that shows a picture of some of the uh, ruins of Haran. And uh, this is a place that was a leading city of the time. So you can see some of the ruins there. It's kind of a modern village of Haran in the background there. But this is where Abraham and Sarai lived in, this, in the ruins of this uh, village. Is where they, they were. It was a leading city of the time. It was this, also a center of pagan worship. And we have no evidence to suggest that Abram or his wife Sarai had ever encountered Yahweh, the Lord, the one true God, until the moment that God reveals himself. In Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, 1 and 2 say this, God comes to Abram and tells him, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, at this point, the text tells us that Abram is 75 years old and he and his wife, Sarai, have no children. Sarah has never been ever, but hasn't ever been able to conceive. And and now this God whom they've never heard of, who they've never encountered before, appears to them and tells them they are going to be the source of a great nation. And, And what's more, this isn't going to happen where they're living, there in Haran. It's going to happen in another country that God's going to show them, but that he's not going to tell them where it is yet. Now, I don't know how, how Sarai responded. The text doesn't tell us. I don't know how she responded when Abraham told her, hey, uh, God spoke to me and we're going to pick up and move. But I can just imagine, you know, if I was here at the office one day and I come home from work and I say, hey, Rach, um, God spoke to me. He said he's going to make a great nation. It's going to come from you and me. And we need to move to a different place, but we don't know where that is yet, but we need to pick up and leave. I, I mean, I don't know exactly how that moment went with Abram and Sarah, but they obey. As outrageous as this seems, as incredible as this seems, they step out in faith and they follow God. And then Abram and Sarai wait. They follow and they wait. 
for a number of years. And then in Genesis 15, we read about God making this promise to Abraham in a more formal way. So he's called Abraham, but then he begins to promise in a more formal way in Genesis chapter 15. And this is really prompted by Abram wondering. He says, he's kind of saying, Lord, what will happen? I'm getting older. I'm not getting any younger here. And I still have no heir who is part of my family. It's this guy from Damascus. He's going to inherit all my stuff. Sarah is still barren. What's your plan for how this is going to work? Oh, and by the way, I still haven't possessed that land that you promised. I don't even know where it is yet. How is that going to work out? The Lord comes to him in that moment. It's a night. The stars are filling the sky. And he says, Abram, you will have a son. And your descendants will be as numerous as the stars that you see in the sky tonight. And in this moment, despite the lack of evidence, despite a lack of understanding of how God is going to make this happen, Abraham believes God, and he waits, and he follows, and he waits. And it's here in Genesis 15 that God first uses the language of covenant, of promise with Abraham. The Lord promises covenants with him to give him his offspring the land that God is leading Abram to. And then Abram and Sarah follow and they wait some more. And and finally in Genesis chapter 16, Sarah says, look, Abram, you and I are both really old, way too old to have kids. I've never been able to have children. And I know God said to you that, you know, we'd have children of our very own, but but maybe I'm not the one to to bear you those children. Maybe you should try to take my uh, my, uh, servant Hagar as a wife. Bad idea. Uh, If you've read Genesis 16, if you read that yesterday and you're open here reading, you know this doesn't work out well. Um, Hagar does get pregnant, but then she hates Sarai, and then Sarai hates Hagar, and then Sarai complains to Abraham, and Abraham basically, you know, takes a lot of leadership and says, hey, I'm not getting involved in this at all. He totally abdicates. He says, she's your servant. Do what she wants, Sarai. And so Sarai's like, well, fine. I'll just make her life completely and utterly miserable. And finally, Hagar runs away. I mean, this is what I love about the Bible. These people aren't sort of these heroic heroes. I mean, they have moments of incredible faith, but then they're also, their lives are a mess as well. And it's encouraging to me that God uses people like them, like you and me, in spite of ourselves to accomplish his work. And so even as, as Hagar is running away and she's fleeing, an angel of the Lord intervenes and tells her to go back. And Hagar gives birth to a baby boy, and he's named Ishmael. And Abraham was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. In Genesis 17, the passage that we're looking at this morning picks up the story 13 years later, 13 years after Ishmael is born. Abraham is now 99 years old. It's been 24 years since God first spoke to him back in Haran. And God's promises still remain unfulfilled. It's been merely two and a half decades since God first spoke, since God first started making promises about a land, about an offspring, about Abram being a blessing to the nations. But so far, he doesn't really have any offspring. He doesn't have a land, and he hasn't been much of a blessing to anyone. I wonder what Abram was thinking at this point. I wonder what he was feeling. Was God ever really going to make good on these promises? He would. I mean, he had to, right? Abraham believed. He trusted. But he also questioned. He wondered. And then just as suddenly, just as without warning as when it had first happened 24 years before, 
God again appeared to Abram. And he appears to Abram and he says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So who is this God who makes these outlandish promises? Well, as we look at these first couple of verses of Genesis chapter 17, we see four things. First, we see that he's the God who is. He is the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth, the creator of all things seen and unseen. He is the one creator of everything. Everything else is creature. Everything else depends on him, and he is dependent on nothing. Because he is, we are. He is existence. He is relationship. He is triune. He is love. He is light. He is truth. He is the God who is there. And second, we see that he is the God who reveals himself to people. He's always there, but he chooses to appear to Abraham. It says that he appeared to Abraham when he was 99 years old. It's not as though God wasn't there before, though, right? God is everywhere present all the time. And yet he chooses to reveal himself to his people. He doesn't remain hidden. He's a God who reveals himself. He's not only transcendent and far off and other, but he's also eminent, near, and personal. He's the God who appears, who reveals, who speaks. Notice the phrase, and God said. It appears three times in Genesis chapter 17, in verse 3, in verse 9, and then down later on in verse 15. And this, actually that phrase, and God said, it brings us right back to Genesis 1 and 2, where God is constantly speaking, and God said, and light appeared, and God said, and then dry land. God speaks creation into existence. He is a God who reveals himself, a God who speaks. Third, he is God Almighty. He's El Shaddai. He's the powerful one who calls forth life where there is no life. Uh, this title, the God Almighty, um, it's, it's, a, it's the Hebrew word El Shaddai. It's the combination of El, the word for God, and, and then the word Shaddai, which connotes the idea of power or might or, or maybe kind of mountains or hills. Again, kind of the same picture of, of mightiness or solidness. It highlights God's strength and power. And this combination of El plus Shaddai, El Shaddai, only occurs here in the book of Genesis, and then once in Exodus and once in Ezekiel. And I love Old Testament scholar Gordon Winham points out, he says it's always used, this term El Shaddai is always used in connection with promises of descendants. It evokes the idea that God is able to make barren, make fertile the, the barren and to fulfill his promises. So who is this God who fulfills his promises? He is God Almighty who makes the barren fertile, who brings life out of death, who keeps his promise. So fourth, he is the God who calls his people into relationship with himself. You see, not only is he the God who is there, not only is he the God who speaks, who reveals himself, and not only is he God Almighty, but he's also a God who wants a relationship with his people. He's a personal God who longs to know us, to be in relationship with us. He says to Abraham, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you. And the idea of walking before me literally means to walk in my face. He calls Abraham literally to walk in my face. This is an invitation to intimacy, to relationship. 
And we see God here is taking the initiative to restore the relationship, the intimacy that he had with Adam and Eve in the garden. When he used to walk in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, he's inviting Abraham back into that kind of intimacy that they had in the garden. Walk before me. This intimacy is paired with the call to be blameless. That is a call to be whole, to be complete. And and we're going to unpack this idea of blamelessness a little bit more later on. But the idea, again, is that Abraham would have the sort of relationship that God had with Adam and Eve in the garden before sin. One of intimacy and blamelessness, of wholeness, completeness. So who is this God who promises? He's God Almighty. And what has this God promised? What exactly has he promised to his people? Well, in in verses 2 through 8, we see the lavish promises that God reiterates to Abram. He has spoken some of these in chapters 12, and then he he kind of expands them in chapter 15. And here in 17, he reinforces and expands it even further. We see in these verses that he promises to multiply Abraham greatly in verse 2. He promises that he will be the father of a multitude of nations in verse 4 and again in verse 5. He promises to make Abraham exceedingly fruitful in verse 6. He promises that kings will come from him in verse 7. And he promises that he will give Abram and his offspring all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. So what is the nature of these covenants, these promises that God is making? Well, first it's important to note that the language of covenant, it's a diverse kind of language. and It's it's used in a lot of different ways in the Bible. It can be used in very kind of uh, political terms to talk about a treaty between two nations. It can also be used to discuss a a relationship between individuals. And so while the language that we've been using of promise kind of interchangeably with covenant is, is an okay way to talk about it, we must be careful not to be too reductionistic in our understanding. In the Bible, the actual term covenant um, occurs about 285 times in the Old Testament. And it it suggests, um, it conveys the idea of a solemn commitment, guaranteeing promises or obligations undertaken by one or more of the covenanting parties. I think J. Alec uh, Matir puts this really well. He says, covenant speaks of the coming into existence of a relationship between two people, two parties who were previously apart from each other. The coming into existence of a relationship between parties who are too previously uh, apart from one another. So in short, this covenant promise that God makes with Abraham, this promise of land, of descendants, of blessing, of intimacy, of wholeness, of kings and nations, and all of this, it's ultimately a promise to rescue, to restore, to bless the whole world. You see, God's plan, his divine project from the very beginning, from the garden, has been to have his people living in his place, under his rule, in his way, in his holy and loving presence, to his glory. Let me say that again. From the very beginning, whether it was in the garden and on forward, God has had the same divine project, and it's to have his people living in his place, under his rule, living his way, in his holy and loving presence, to his glory. And God has not wavered from this. It's what he's covenanting to do through Abram and his offspring. And God further solidifies and expands on these promises here. And notice when he does this, he changes 
Abram and Sarai's name, from Abram and Sarai to Abraham and Sarai. And this name change in the, in the ancient Near East especially, it denoted really an identity change. It was, a, it was a marker. So you even see in contemporary texts of the time, like Amenhotep IV, who was a, a pharaoh in Egypt, when he introduced a new sort of theological perspective on the Egyptian gods, he actually changed his name as a sign of that. So the changing of a name is a marker of a new thing that's happening, a new identity. Abram and Sarai are now Abraham and Sarah, the ones chosen by God to play an essential role in advancing his project of rescue, restoration, and blessing. So who is this God who promises? He's God Almighty. He's El Shaddai. What does this God promise? He promises rescue, restoration. And how do God's people respond to his promise? Well, we see in the text in verse 3 that the first thing that Abram does is he falls on his face. You see, when God speaks, when God promises and calls his people, they respond in humble, faithful obedience. We saw at the beginning of the message that, that promise is the prelude to action. A promise that you make to marry someone, then, then a wedding ensues. When God makes a promise, his people respond in obedience. However, we must not miss that God's promise enables and motivates our obedience, not the other way around. That it's the promise that comes first. And this is the fundamental difference between religion and the gospel. We talk about this all the time, but religion says that if I obey, then I'll be accepted by God. But the gospel says something completely different. It says, I am accepted by God, therefore I obey. The promise comes first, then the obedience. And this is the, God, the way that God relates to his people in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There aren't sort of this Old Testament God who's angry and vengeful and this New Testament God who's full of grace and mercy. No, always the pattern throughout the entire Bible is gift and then demand. As we're going to see in a couple of weeks when we look at the Exodus story, it's so clear in the Exodus story. God doesn't give his people the law while they're still in Egypt, the Ten Commandments, and say, if you obey the Ten Commandments, then I'll rescue you from Egypt. No, he rescues them as a gift. He brings them out. He saves them. And then in the wilderness at Sinai, then he gives them the law to say, this is how you live in light of the new freedom that you have. Gift comes before demand. God always, what he does, what the Lord does, always precedes what he demands. This is the God, the way our generous, gracious God interacts with his people from day one to the end of the time. So God promises, he covenants with Abram, or Abraham and Sarah, and Abram responds in obedience. So what is this obedience, obedient response, motivated God problems? What does it look like in the life of his people? What does this response of obedience look like? Well, in, in Abram's story, we see it looks like four, four things. And, and I think these connect with our experience as well. First, God's people respond by accepting his invitation to intimacy. As we saw earlier, God calls his people to walk in his face. Being God's people 
Being in God's face represents an intimacy of relationship. Being face-to-face with someone is a posture of intimacy, right? So when you're, when you're sitting across the table, whether it's in a meeting or over dinner, when you're, when you're face-to-face, there's an intimacy, a relational posture that is there. And, and think about it. Even the, the kind of the technologies that we use um, to try to create intimacy, even though they often fail at it, they bring in this face language, right? So we have like FaceTime on your iPhone. You've got Facebook, Go to meeting with HD faces. You see, we all recognize that there's an intimacy that comes with being face-to-face with someone that you don't get any other way. When God makes promises to his people, they respond by accepting his invitation to a face-to-face relationship with him. Second, God's people respond by accepting his invitation to wholeness. And that word translated blameless carries this idea of wholeness or completeness. It's the word tome. If you've been around Christ's community, been through razors, you know this word well. There's no duplicity here. That's the idea. God calls his people to a life that has him and him alone as its center and as its goal. Him alone as hope and reward. Now, it doesn't mean that we will live a life of sinless perfection. That's not what this is talking about. Abraham doesn't. I mean, we see that in his story, right? He doesn't live a perfect life by any means. Neither do Noah, who was also called blameless, or David, and other people who are called blameless, whole. Rather, it means having God as the goal and our hope. I love how, how Hamilton describes this. He writes, those who adamantly reject God will... God's will for their lives will find that God honors that decision. He says, but those who at least stumble and fall in the direction of God's will will find a divine resource and a promise from God. Wholeness doesn't mean that we never fail or fall, but rather that our stumblings and fallings are on the path in our pursuit of the God who loves us in his will. Let me say that again. Wholeness doesn't mean that we never stumble or fail, but rather that our stumblings and followings are on our path in the pursuit of the God who loves us in the pursuit of his will. Third, God's people respond in obedience, even when that obedience is costly and painful. You see, the sign of the promise of the covenant that God makes with Abram, as we read on in the chapter, is circumcision. And this is not exactly an easy and painless way to mark a promise, right? Um, I love comedian uh, Jim Gaffigan has this great bit on circumcision in the Old Testament. And at one point he says, you know, those challenges in the Bible, they, they really sort of took a leap in difficulty. You know, it starts off and God's like, don't eat this apple. And it's like, build me this boat. And then he's like, now circumcise yourself. And then it's like, wait, maybe could I just build you two boats or... So, so why does God choose circumcision as the method for marking his covenant with his people in the Old Testament? Why this? Well, first, it's necessary to understand that this isn't the moment when sort of circumcision is invented. This practice was common among the surrounding cultures, especially in Egypt. And if, you know, you're kind of reading the story of Abram, you know, he sojourns in Egypt, that God's people are going to be in Egypt. And so an Egyptian background of understanding this is so important. And what God does is he takes this Egyptian practice and he transforms it. He gives it new meaning. You see, in Egypt, there are basically two sets of, of people who went under, underwent circumcision. The king, the pharaoh, and it was to set him apart as the son of the gods. The pharaoh was the son of the gods. He was a god himself in the Egyptian mindset. And so this is the act that consecrated him in that role. The other group of people were the priests, the holy people of the Egyptian 
um, the Egyptian people who interacted with the gods. And so what God does is by taking this covenant of circumcision and giving it to his people, he transforms it to say, you now are all, as a nation, are the sons of God. You are all a holy nation, a holy priesthood. You see, with the male serving as the representative for all the people, they are all now a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, as they'll be called in Exodus 19.6. So God takes this ritual from Egypt, and he transforms it. Where only a small group of people were to be priests in the Egyptian context, now all of God's people are to be in relationship with him in this unique way. And the fact that this takes place on the eighth day is significant as well. This was also different than how any of the other uh, cultures around practiced the ritual of circumcision. It was done much later in life. But in Israel, it was done on the eighth day of the baby's life. And again, this is so significant because the eighth day represents the idea of new creation. You had the six days of creation and then rest, and then the eighth day was the next, the new creation, the day of new creation. And so this sign is a mark that this people was God's new creation people. Circumcision is an irrevocable sign. It was a symbol of the gift, but it also required obedience. And what we see in the New Testament, that after Christ's death and resurrection, is that when the new covenant supersedes the old, the sign of the new covenant is baptism rather than circumcision. And Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, he says, In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting on the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And I love what uh, New Testament scholar Beasley Murray, he observes that Paul depicts Christ's death as a circumcision. Formerly, there was the cutting off of the foreskin is now replaced by the tearing of Christ's whole body, hence his death. You see, just as for Abraham, accepting the outward side of the covenant is the ritual that reflected internal faith, the circumcision rite was costly. So today, accepting the sign of the new covenant, baptism, too, ratifying internal faith, is also extremely costly. I mean, when you hear stories of believers in majority Muslim contexts or Hindu contexts or Buddhist contexts, it's the moment they choose to accept baptism that they often, it's in that moment that they are then rejected by their families, exposed to ridicule and persecution. It's that sealing moment that people recognize that once they've been baptized, that they're now really in this, that they've been marked out. Fourth, God's people respond in trust, even when it seems laughable. Again, as we read further down in chapter 17, Adam res- or Abraham responds in laughter to the promise that he and Sarah are going to have a baby next year. He says, you're going to have the son Isaac. And he falls on his face again, the text says, and he laughs. He falls on his face and he says, God, look. And I love what he says in this one. He says, God, may, Is- or may Ishmael live before you. He said, God, we, we, I mean, we've got a son. <laughs> Ishmael, isn't he good enough? I mean, do we really have to keep even making these promises for 24 years now? Can't Ishmael just be the one? And he says, no. This time next year, you... And Sarah will have a son of your own. And you'll see this next week as you read. You see, ultimately, Abram responded in trust, even when he didn't see God's promise fully fulfilled, because the gifts of the promise weren't his ultimate goal and hope. 
they weren't his ultimate goal as hope. The gifts weren't his ultimate goal and hope. I love how Ed Clowney puts this. He said, God promised not merely to give Abraham a reward, but to be Abraham's reward. God promised not merely to give Abraham a reward, but to be Abraham's reward. There's no greater blessing possible. God himself would be the inheritance, the portion of Abraham and his seed. See, our God makes outlandish promises, and he keeps them. As we fast forward in the biblical storyline, we see that he fulfills his end of the promise by sending Jesus. He sends this promised heir as he's promised from the very beginning. But the truly amazing part is what we see is that he also fulfills our end of the promise through Jesus. And that Jesus, the heir, pays for our covenant breaking. You see, Jesus, who had perfectly been perfectly intimate with the Father, gives up that perfect intimacy on the cross. He who had been utterly blameless is now broken and shattered and unmade on the cross. Yet he obeys even to the point of death on a cross, and he trusts even in the face of abandonment on the cross. You see, Jesus succeeded where we failed. He is faultless where we were at fault, and yet he takes our failings and our faults on himself. And he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, through Jesus, God fulfills his end of the promise to send a deliverer and our end of the promise to be in faithful relationship with him. You see, we live in a world where everyone breaks their promises. But God's promise is bound up with his own self-sacrifice on the cross, and that cannot be undone. His promise cannot be undone. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, religion says that if you obey, then you will be accepted. But the gospel says, I am accepted in Christ, therefore I obey. You see, the entire motivation then shifts. Because we have been bought, because we have been rescued out of gratitude and delight, we get to obey God to his great glory and our great joy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you have been at work in and through Abraham and through all kinds of other broken and faulty people. And we're thankful that you are both the covenant maker and the covenant keeper, that you make the promise and you fulfill them on our behalf, that you might free us to live as you have called us to live. Father, may we live in light of the joy that we are accepted in Jesus. And that out of that joy and freedom, we might seek your design for our lives, even when it's difficult, even when it seems laughable. We ask this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.